0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson, excited to have you with us for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I wanted to let you know about a few things that I've been up to. First of all, we recently launched a new company called Strong Skills, which is a coaching and training company that believes mindset, introspection, communication, resilience, teamwork, empathy, Things that are often referred to as soft skills are actually at the very core of successful leadership and successful performance. In our mind, there is nothing soft about these skills or their impact on individuals, teams, and organizations. In fact, these are actually our strong skills, hence the name. I'm super excited for what we are doing and the team we have assembled. If you are interested in learning more, head over to strongskills.co. That's strongskills.co. Also, on that website, you'll see a tab about my new book, which is called Shift Your Mind. It breaks down nine mental shifts to help you thrive in preparation and performance. Really excited about it. It's building some momentum and can't tell you how much I appreciate all the support I've gotten already. This book took me about three years to write, and I'm extremely excited to share it with you. If you're interested in pre-ordering the book for yourself, you can do so at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or IndieBound, where you most likely will be able to find your local bookstore, which of course we wanna support those bookstores. So head over to one of those websites and buy the book. Also, if you're interested in buying a bulk order of at least 20 or more copies, we've created a special offer that includes a shout out on this podcast, an hour long Zoom call with yours truly to discuss the book, and a mention on social media. We hope the book can help you and your team thrive. Now to today's guest. John Cipher is the co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment, a production firm providing content and talent to the entertainment industry. John is also a foreign policy and intelligence expert and social media influencer. He's really active on Twitter. I highly recommend you follow him there. And his articles have been published in The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Politico. Pretty much everywhere you get your news, John has has appeared. He regularly appears on the PBS NewsHour, CNN, NPR, MSNBC, BBC, et cetera, et cetera. He retired in 2014 after a 28-year career in the CIA National Clandestine Service. At the time of his retirement, he was a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides CIA activities globally. John served multiple overseas tours as chief of station and deputy chief station in Europe, Asia, and in high threat environments. He has significant experience working with foreign and domestic partners to solve national security challenges. John also served as a lead instructor in the CIA's Clandestine Training School and was a regular lecturer at the CIA's Leadership Development Program. So this is somebody who knows leadership, has been in rugged and scary and tough environments, and he is also the recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. From 2014 to 2019, he worked as a consultant for the McChrystal Group. Shout out to Sebastian Little, one of our previous guests who also worked at the McChrystal Group. He also, John, was a consultant for Crosslead, which is a software and service firm. John also has a sports background. He was the captain of the four-time national champion lacrosse team at Hobart, and he also added a variety of executive courses at Harvard, Northwestern, the Aspen Institute, and the Intelligence Community's Executive Leadership Program. So this is somebody that lives at the intersection of sports, leadership, high performance. He's perfect for the Intentional Performers podcast. And I know you're going to love his wisdom, his knowledge, and how intentional he is about going about how he thinks and acts within this world. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, John Cipher. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to chat with you and learn from you today. When I emailed you to confirm this meeting, I said, Hey, John, just making sure we're still good to go. And you wrote me back. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little nervous. And I thought to myself, I'm like, all right, here is this person who's been all over the world and and probably been in some pretty hostile situations. And this is, this is making him nervous. And I thought that was kind of an interesting email to send. I'm curious to talk to you a little bit about nerves and, and pressure and figured we just dive right into there. Like, what do you think about nervousness, pressure, and, and, and how, do you, how do you think about that?
1: Well I, don't, I think everybody gets nervous and, and everybody deals with pressure a different way. I mean I, I you know grew up and, and played sports and then got involved with CIA and lived in a lot of crazy places around the world and, and, you, know, and you gain confidence in this fact that you can figure things out and you can d- deal with resources and people to figure things out, but you but to suggest that, you know, you're never, you're never nervous or that you, that, you know, especially if you're in charge of people or responsible for people, you're not nervous for yourself. You're nervous that you're doing right by, by others. And so, you know, when I said I was nervous for this, is because you were, you talk about a variety of different things and leadership and management and, you know, and, and things. And lately when I've done anything for the press or, or podcasts or TV things, you know, I'm talking about, russia and, and espionage and politics and these kind of things. And so I just figured this was a little bit different. and so i I didn't want to fall follow my sword for it. but yeah, I mean, I think how you handle nervousness is much different than the whole point of you know, people who say they aren't nervous or they never get scared are usually full of full of it.
0: It's interesting because I, uh, I don't, we might we might dabble in politics in Russia, but it's definitely not what I'm most interested in in talking to you. There's a great philosopher named Beyonce Knowles who people have probably <laughs> seen perform at the halftime show at the Super Bowl. And uh, she she's just an amazing performer. And she says, I'm nervous when I'm not nervous. If I'm nervous, it means I'm gonna have a great show. And I think that's what you're hitting on is like how you interpret those nerves and how you think about them. Um, it, it often dictates your relationship with with nerves and, and pressure when have you been nervous? You mentioned like people's lives being in your hands and, you know, in talking to Mark, one of the things that I didn't really think about was like his job was to create relationships with people who were risking their lives when they trusted him. Um, What did that feel like to know that, hey, decisions I'm making and actions that I take have real world consequences and real life consequences on people's lives. How did you carry that? How did you manage that? How did you, how did you deal with that?
1: Yeah. It's interesting when people talk about people who were in the military or in intelligence services and tough places overseas, you know, the people sometimes sometimes be like, Oh, what you did was, you know, heroic or, you know, it was really important or, or, or is dangerous. And, and frankly, in the clandestine service for us, the, the thing that, most important to us is that those relationships with sources, people overseas that help the United States. And so what I don't think most people realize is you know the incredible heroes that put themselves and their families at risks in places for the United States. So a Russian citizen or an Iraqi citizen or a Chinese person who is willing to commit espionage or commit treason against his own country or his own government more often than his own country to help the United States. and that's a sacred honor to to put someone to put their lives in your hands. And so you take that really, really seriously. So if I'm going to go meet that person on a street corner in a dark alley to have him share the latest political intelligence that the White House needs to know, um, as I go out to do that, I'm thinking, hey, you know, at the end of the day, I have to be right 100% of the time. If I'm going to meet this person once a week for the next two years, if I... If I, if I cut corners or I'm not really paying attention and, and the local service whose job it is to, to thwart what I'm up to, you know, sees me just one time or I make a mistake or I use a telephone or I do something that puts that person at risk. If I'm along just one time, that person's life is at risk. Not only would the U S government lose, lose that intelligence, but, but uh, that person could lose their life. Their family could uh, lose a husband or a wife. So, so for us, the thing that makes us most nervous is not our own safety or our, our own things. It's it's taking our job and our work and our responsibilities seriously enough to, to protect those people and, and not to never to cut corners. You know, when I go out and I go for three, four hours, hiding in the, hiding in the streets and making sure that I, I don't have surveillance. I'm not being followed. Those last five minutes as I'm leading up to meet that person, I'm thinking, geez, that I, was it, was my mind somewhere else? Was I not paying attention to someone who might be lurking behind, or a car, or there's a helicopter above that's trying to watch what I'm doing? You know, you have to be really sure, and and that's that's when you get scared and when, and when you worry about because you you know, you can protect yourself, but protecting those people, it's it's really important to us.
0: You mentioned something about government versus country and. I think there was a distinction there that's interesting to me. And you said, you know, they're they're turning on their country, their government. You sort of shifted from turning against their country to turning against their government. Can you just go into that distinction a little bit and how you see that?
1: Sure. Because I mean, when a lot, a lot of people think about you know someone who's spying, you know, they're they're traitors or they're committing treason, or they're you know they're they're working against their country. What I find most often is. Those people think that their country on the wrong track. That their the government of the country is on the wrong track. They're often patriots. You know, if there's a Russian who's spying to help America, it's not because he dislikes, you know, his his country's history and his country. It's because he thinks the leadership is corrupt or the leadership is is going the wrong direction and hurting the people of that country. So it's rare that the people that work for us are trying to do damage to their fellow citizens or to, to their families or to their country, they see they're actually helping their country. They're they're using the United States because they have respect in what the United States stands for in the world to try to make their country better. And there's a lot of really corrupt and really poorly run governments and regimes around the world. And so I think most people who end up spying for us. They They might be against their regime or against the government in their country, but I, I would not say that they're, they're trying to hurt their own country.
0: Go back a little bit. So I'm curious, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the CIA days, but Mm -hmm. what was life like for you as a kid? Um, Give me, give me the upbringing. Cause for me, at least one of the reasons I like to find out people's stories and those that have listened to the podcast know that I love to find out how people came to be them is because I just think our upbringing is, is a, plays a massive role in how we've become who we are. And to not take that into account is, to me, to not understand a more whole story, and so um, that's why I, I like to go there. For those that are listening, but um, for you as well. So, give me a uh, give me some insight into what life was like for you as a kid.
1: Sure, and I, and I think it fits into what we're going to talk about later. I mean, one of the things that I think CIA does best is it really focuses on trying to bring the right people in, put the right people on the bus, and diverse. And, and interesting people people who are self-motivated and come from a variety of different backgrounds and, and skills and essentially if you put the right people in together then you can you can get things done and you don't have to create bureaucracy and regulation to try to fix the problems by the problem people you brought in. Um, and I think they do a pretty good pretty good job of that. Um, I'm from upstate New York I grew up in central New York up near the finger Lakes. From Cortland, New York, near sort of Ithaca, where Cornell is, and, and the Finger Lakes, and uh, my parents were both teachers. My father was a professor at Cortland State, which is the local um, state college in 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 central New York. There, and um, and my mother was a librarian and uh, taught in the schools system. And so, you now I sort of always grew up with lots of books around. Always interested in sort of history and. And what's happening politically and those type of things, but from a small town. And so, you know, I loved it. I played sports. I played football and basketball and baseball and lacrosse and, and swimming and everything else growing up. And so, you know, I was more probably of a jock, but I was always interested in, in school and in things happening around me. And and I went to college nearby. So I was I was a good football and lacrosse player. And so I was thinking about going to school to play those things. I was looking at at West Point and at Cornell and Princeton, some different options. I ended up going to Hobart College, and because um, lacrosse was sort of my main sport, and they were re- they were really good at the time back then when Division three schools could play Division one schools. You know, Hobart would routinely beat Cornell and Syracuse and and schools like that. Um,
0: John, what, what what position lacrosse and what position football?
1: I played defense in, in lacrosse and in football, I was a tight end and a defensive tackle. Got it. yeah got it. And,
0: yeah. and and so you were able to play both at Hobart. Is that what you're're you're saying?
1: Well, interesting. So I, I was planning to, for all those schools to go play both. and then um, probably a better lacrosse player at the time. and um, and i and I chose to go to Hobart, and I had gone to the lacrosse camp up at Hobart and and befriended the guy who eventually became our goalie at Hobart, and his father worked there. And so the summer before freshman year, I went up to work at work at the campus and worked on maintenance and tearing apart sidewalks and pouring concrete and all sorts of fun things and essentially didn't work out and didn't prepare myself to play football. So I ended up choosing not to play football thinking it was, you know, cause I, I hadn't prepared and I really got very focused on lacrosse cause the had was sort of, uh, had routinely won national championships in division three level. And, uh, and so I ended up playing lacrosse and not football during my time there. And, uh, Finished the school there, lacrosse team was good. We won four national championships when I was there. Uh, was the captain of the team and, and just loved it. You know, small school, you know, big fish and small pond, you know, uh, you know, really enjoyed, did, did well in school. And then went off and did graduate school for a year at Columbia doing international affairs. While I was at Hobart, I did one semester uh, overseas and L- they had a class where they took group to London semester and and it's really my first real time being overseas and I really enjoyed it and so I I I thought you know as I moved on I wanted to do something that related to foreign affairs or being overseas history and politics and and so I went to international affairs school at Columbia for a couple years and worked internship at the State Department And, and that's sort of the way I sort of moved towards going to CIA.
0: Going back to your childhood, were there any watershed moments that you look back on and you say, gosh, that really impacted who I am today?
1: Not watershed moments in terms of crises or problems. I I think, you know, I was fortunate to have really loving and thoughtful parents. And so I think it was more of a, you know, learning good habits and, and learning about, you know, being a good person and taking care of other people is probably the most important thing you can do and, and being interested in, in, in a variety of issues and things. So it wasn't, wasn't so much that anything specific that sort of changed my direction or anything like that. No.
0: What were the values that, that your parents passed down to you?
1: I don't know. I don't want to be hokey. I mean, you know, it's sort of uh, they they were interested in things and they uh, were incredibly supportive. I think my father went to every single sporting event I ever, and he was a professor and he was busy. He was doing things, and at the time you don't realize, you know, the guy. Now I see you know, how busy you can be when you have a job. I can't imagine, you know, how, he would always make a point of finding a way to go to every game, home away, no matter no matter what. And so, um, I just think they were so supportive, and so interested in things and, and trying to help me, and nor, but not pushing me in any one direction that sort of developed, I guess, the way I developed. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I'm so little, I'm comfortable trying to say that
0: you oh, have, uh, I you learned
1: have... to do the right things or whatever. <laughs> you
0: know? It's okay. You have a bunch of books over both of your shoulders, the left and the right <laughs> shoulder. And then mom is a, mom's a librarian. Yeah, he's looking yeah. at the books that he's got. Mom's a, Mom's a librarian, dad's um, you know, an educator was reading, uh, a part of your childhood. Did you like reading when you were younger? I, and I'll just speak for myself. Like I didn't read anything when I was a kid. (laughs) like, I, I didn't read much in college. And I went to one of the schools you already mentioned, which is Syracuse. Um, like I didn't read much in college. And, uh, you know, did okay. It wasn't until grad school where I really started fall in love with reading um, and figuring out what I like to read and how I like to read. And today I read plenty. I'm not like, you know, these people that say, Oh, I read a book a week. Like, I mean, I read, I, I like to read It's It's all good. But, um, was how education stressed? I would imagine librarian, um, professor, you mentioned maybe going to West point, maybe going to Princeton. Hobart is, is a great school. Uh, Maybe, how how did education play a role in, in your upbringing?
1: Yeah, my parents went to Syracuse. My mom got her master's in librarian science. and My dad got his PhD from Syracuse. I'm not a big Syracuse fan because we used to play him in mean, lacrosse and all that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, reading was always part of it. I think my parents read to me when I was young. We had sort of a library. I, you, know, I, you know, think about it at the time because it's just your home. But, you know, we had two of our front rooms that were just, you know, floor to ceiling. You know, sort of library of books and and I can remember we used to have the uh, the old Encyclopedia Britannica and I'd sit and just sort of like actually read <laughs> all the way through and read things and stuff. And so yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, I'd, if I was to read stuff, it would be sports books or, you know, Sports Illustrated more than anything else. But as I got older, I would, I would even when I was in college and in graduate school and stuff, I would often read read for fun. So I would do my schoolwork, but I, you know, it was sort of my way of relaxing at night or whatever, just to read a book. Mostly history or stuff, you know, I, I read some fiction and stuff, but I tend to read more nonfiction. So I think just being around the university atmosphere and teachers and, and books and stuff eventually sort of impacted the way I grew
0: up. You mentioned being a four-time national champion at Hobart. Why do you guys? Why do you think you all were so successful?
1: I you know, I think there are two things. I think there was a um, a long history there. I mean, Syracuse and Hobart have been playing each other since like 1916 or some ridiculous thing. And you know, Hobart played in the 1880s and 90s against Indian tribes and and some of the Ivy League schools and things. So there's a huge long history and tradition there. So that you know, you just you, you fit into. And also, I was fortunate enough, and one of the reasons I went there was just because the coach was so so excellent um dave Yurick. his name was he eventually coached at georgetown where he went to school so, but he he won you know, 12 straight national championships at hobart and then eventually went and sort of started up a program at, at georgetown and uh you know i went around to a variety of places and i looked at schools and 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 he was just such a funny supportive and a you know, kind of guy you would run through a wall for that um as I visited that school, I just felt, you know, I, I would, you go to, went to Cornell, and it was nice, and Richie Moran was was a, was, a, was sort of a famous coach at the time and was supportive, but, you know, you'd go to these parties when you're in high school to, at Cornell as you, were, as you were looking at the school, and people would be like, they didn't want to invest too much in you, like, good luck in getting in, they would say. But when I went but I went to Hobart, and you deal with Coach Urick, you know, you play basketball with them, and you go home and eat with them, and you go to parties with people, and I, I just felt, I felt like a place that was small and that could really sort of, so bring you in, and so so playing for him was something that was very important to me.
0: You mentioned being a captain. What did you learn from that experience, and about leadership, and how to, how did that have an impact on you?
1: Yeah, I think when you're young, I don't know if you you uh, you you really think about or or sort of intellectualize what it is about leadership. It's just sort of something something you do, and you think, well, maybe either I have that that skill or not. But I think some of the things that end up, you know, you look on. Later in your life, is you know, sort of the habits. It, it's sort of having an interest in, sort of being energized, and wanting to be supportive, sort of wanting to do the right thing, um, you know, taking pride in sort of your teammates and, and thinking, sort of, not just about yourself. And so, you know, work growing up with a program that had such a winning um, pedigree. You know, you are every day you're seeing the kind of things uh, and, and and bringing them in, into yourself and becoming habits for you that later on when you look back, you realize that's, that didn't happen for everybody. I think those are things that sort of you really learned about. Like now we're watching, you know, you watch the, the thing about Jordan for the last few weeks. It was on ESPN and you realize, you know, what is it about those teams and those um, those habits and and, and the way they did things that made them successful. And so obviously his talent and his skill was one thing, but how do you mix, you know, when he didn't have Phil Jackson and he didn't have Pippin and these other things, were they as successful? And and what is it that sort of made made that work?
0: Well, I think one of the big takeaways from that documentary is that you mentioned diversity earlier and how the CIA values people from different backgrounds. You know, you're looking at Dennis Rodman, you're looking at Steve Kerr, you're looking at Scottie Pippen, you're looking at Michael Jordan. Like these guys had different backgrounds. And I think too often, especially in our military, uh, I've talked to a lot of special ops people and, um, you know, I think there's sometimes a lean to go toward having everybody be exactly the same. Um, Like I think, Where diversity adds value is that it shows you different perspectives and different ways of doing things. And I think one of the things about the Bulls is that Phil Jackson was masterful in the way he would try to bring out each individual's best. And look, I think having Dennis Rodman was not easy. And uh, I think they would much rather him show up when he's supposed to show up. But Phil was going to manage him the best he could to bring out the best Dennis Rodman, as long as it wasn't going to poison the rest of the team. And there was that moment where Scotty Pippen refused to go back into the game and he has to hold him accountable. And I think one of the lessons for me in that documentary is like, we can teach leadership, we can teach skills all we want. At the end of the day, like a lot of these decisions have to be made based off feel or instinct and also based on values and based on you know, our own personal guidelines and we need to be agile and learn how to play with it and be flexible because at the end of the day, they would talk about it with Dennis Rodman over and over. Like they didn't have anyone else on that team who could rebound and play defense like Dennis could. And when he got between the lines, he always, he would show up. And uh, so I think, I think it's fascinating because too often we try to put everything into a box and put a bow around it and say, this is the way to do it. And that's the only way. And anytime I hear only have to always, my antenna always goes up because I think there's, I always say there's so many ways to eat a Reese's, like there's so many different ways to attack challenges. Um, so that's one of my takeaways. I don't know if you want to riff on that at all as well. Yeah.
1: I, interestingly. So I, I remember you know, when I was in CIA, we, we had a thing called Leadership Seminar. We tried to pull together ideas and books and things to talk about, you know, what it is that made us successful and how, you know, how, how to think about leadership. And I can remember reading a Red Auerbach's book about, you know, leading the Celtics when he was coaching. And people talked about, you know, hey, what are your what are your rules for the players? He's like, I don't have rules for the players that I don't treat. My point is not to treat everyone equally. It's to treat people um, the way each one of them needs to be treated so they can come together. So, so uh star might get better treatment or different treatment than than somebody else. Different people have different needs. And there was a book I remember at the time uh, we would read called, uh, I think it was First Break All the Rules. It was a Gallup, a book by Gallup. And so they had studied a wide variety of organizations and companies and things and and tried to look at it, what is it that that leaders and managers you know, good ones and, and, and high performing organizations did best. And one of them was a lot of companies and organizations and government agencies for that matter fail because they're so focused on fixing people's weaknesses. And they found that managers spent almost all their time working on their weak their weakest employees, trying to bring them up rather than giving their strongest employees what they need. And their point was, listen, people don't change that much. Um, but what you want to do is take the people who are really good and make sure they're playing up to their potential. And so, leading and management is like selecting, seeing, and understanding talent, defining the outcomes for those people, and then putting people in the right fit. So a lot of a lot of um, management failures when people aren't doing well. It's it's not so much that. Um, you know, there's something wrong with them. It's almost you have the wrong fit. You got to find people with what do they do best and put them in a position to do what they do best, rather than try to make everybody the same. Like if you spent all your time trying to make you know, Michael Jordan a better teammate and not be so hard on people, you would have been wasting your time. And you know, or if you tried to if you tried to make Dennis Rodman conform, you were gonna you weren't gonna get what you needed to do. You had to understand the different strengths and fits of people and put them in the right places and and uh, try to, you know, focus on the outcomes. And so I think those are some of the things is, you know, a lot of times organizations and companies, they're so focused on sort of either on fairness or rules and regulations. And a lot of times you got to realize, you know, regulations and bureaucracy are, you know, often are built up to facilitate the small group of people who probably shouldn't be there in the first place, as opposed to providing a runway for people to do their best.
0: I love it. Look, I think systems, um, and sports is really good at, at teasing this out. So if you have a system in place, then you know what groceries to go shop for. It's like, I could go to the grocery store and. Oh that looks nice. That looks nice. I'm just going to grab a bunch of stuff and then it sits in my refrigerator and it goes old and I've got no use for it and then I throw it away and that was a waste of money. And so a lot of sports teams will do that. They'll just say, "Oh, this person's good. They're talented. Give me them. Give me the most talented people and then we'll put it all together." And then they have groceries that can't function. I think if you look at the Bulls and you look at the Spurs and you look at the Patriots and you look at the Seahawks and you look at, you know, whatever you know, we're in Washington, D.C. with the Washington Nationals, like you look at great organizations and they tend to know how they want to play and their system and their process. So for the Bulls, it was a triangle. And then they knew, okay, we're going to put Steve Kerr in here. And this is the role that Steve's going to play. He's going to play the Paxson role. And this is the role that our bigs are going to play. And I once talked to an NBA general manager and uh, he said, gosh, we really got to make sure that our players know our system and why we run our system." and understand it. And I was like, yeah, but what if you get LeBron James tomorrow? And he turned to me and I'll never forget. He said, Brian, you think the Bulls ran the triangle offense for Michael Jordan? They didn't run it for Jordan. They ran it for everybody else. And so when you have a system, then you need talent. Like there's no one's going to say you don't need talent. And in sports you need transcendent talent. And in addition to talent, you also need to know, What's our system? And then I've been in the war room with a lot of these organizations and I've seen great war rooms when they're drafting players and I've seen not so great war rooms when they're drafting players. And you have to know what that person does really well. And to your point about potential, if we plug them into this space, what can they become? And the clarity that organizations, you watch the Patriots, when they take Julian Edelman, who is a quarterback, and they say, we're going to take this guy who was a quarterback at Kent State but we're going to plug him into what we do. And we think he's going to be very good. And he'll probably be a Hall of Famer uh, when it's all said and done. Like, they know how they know what they're looking for. And they know, well, this is what this person does well. And how can we put that person in a position to succeed? But you take Edelman and you put him as a quarterback on another team or you put him in a different position or a different place. Like, he's not a Hall of Famer. Um, so, anyway, I think sports can really show how system and process. And then also, I, I love what you said, because I see it so often when I'm talking to CEOs, they're like really struggling with someone. I'll ask them point blank, like, do you think that person is the best fit for what you need out of them job wise? And A lot of times they'll say no. And I'll be like, you're not doing that person any service by keeping them in that position, because they're, they're not going to be able to maximize who they are and what they can contribute in that role. So let's try to find a different role. Or let's figure out another alternative for this person. You're holding them back by dragging them along. Um, you're not doing them any, any service either um, by taking that approach. I want to go back to lacrosse. Uh, you mentioned before we started recording that you've got three kids that are high school, college, and, and sort of post-college as you think about yourself back then, and you said, you know, you don't really think about it a lot. You just sort of do it and you're trying to figure it out, but there's not a whole lot of strategy that goes into it. Fast forward years later, you now have people whose lives you are actually managing or in charge of or responsible for, whatever the right word is there. What advice would you give to yourself as the captain of that lacrosse team your your senior year, knowing what you know now and knowing how you've watched leadership and, and relationships and valuing assets and, and all that good stuff, what advice would you have given to yourself back then to the person that was just doing it and was just in it?
1: Probably just what you suggest is, is to think deeply about what you're involved in and what makes it successful. What is it about these specific relationships, this way of coaching, this system that you talked about? What is it about that that makes it successful? So that as I move forward and, and see and learn more things, I can d- decide I can either take on new ideas and new things, or I can say, "Hey, what is it about this that make, that makes it successful?" And that is again, I agree with you. It's one thing about sports is because you know winning and losing is so clear, and building a, and building a culture of success is something that you can study so clearly in sports. Um, I, I think it definitely translates to other parts you know, of 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 life. You know, it's someone who is in college, for example, and is doing all they need to do to get up in the morning and go to class and get things done and structure their schedule, but also take that extra time to go to the weight room or you know, don't don't, you know, be taking drugs and getting drunk all the time or hanging out with the wrong people so that you can focus on on, you know, you know, your your teammates and doing the right thing and then uh, you know, putting in the time and effort. And so, so, the, you know, at the time, you don't realize it, but you're in a system. And later on, you realize when you work for companies and organizations and different things is that there's a, that there's a process there. There's, there's sort of a variety of inputs that, that make that system successful. Well, And, you know, I think successful organizations, just like successful sports teams, build a culture of trust. And and the question is how do how do they do that? And so when you're in something that's successful, think about what is what is it about that that makes that that successful? And think and if you can if you can replicate that.
0: How do you build trust? I mean, you let's go to the whether it's your days in the CIA or you've got a freshman who can help you out on the lacrosse team. What are some things that you found help to build trust?
1: Um, a variety of things. One is you know. Um, do what you say Uh, another one is, is, you know, don't punish failure over punish failure and create a system of sort of accountability. And so a lot of it has to do with putting in the time and effort to do things right. Not being afraid to make mistakes, uh, adapting and learning from those mistakes, but taking accountability for them. So I think, um, you know, People have to be in the, in a system where where um, they're pushing the envelope at all times. You you know, General Hayden when he ran the CIA used to say, you know, I'm I'm given legal boundaries by my political leadership of what they want me to do, and I'm going to push right up to always have chalk on my cleats. I want to be right on the edge of. If I'm going to be successful at doing what I need to do, I need to be right up at the edge of my authorities to make sure that I'm doing as much as I can to keep the American people safe. And it's the same in, in anything, is you need, to, you need to push up to that edge. But when you're at the edge, the edge of, of success, of really trying to succeed, you're sometimes going to make mistakes. You're going to step over the boundary. And so you have to understand that there's going to be failure, and you need to learn from the failure. But, but what you learn when you lead people, you're coaching people, is you can't destroy people for failing. You have, to, you have to teach them to be accountable and then teach them to move on. And so I can tell you an incredible amount of stories of people who have been incredibly successful and done things for this country. But at some point in their career, they they screwed up. They were in the penalty box for doing something wrong, but they weren't destroyed because they were able to sort of learn from that and, and move forward. And uh, I think you see a lot of... In our government now, or in in companies, where they sort of create this sort of um, culture of fear, like if you make a mistake, you're going to get you're going to get destroyed. And and if you're if you've ever been in a bad team, or if you've been in a bad organization, or been had bad leaders and managers, you realize that you know in that culture of fear, information doesn't flow like it needs to flow. And so those leaders, and I can see it now. For and I don't want to be political, but like. President Trump has created this atmosphere where he's always right, and anybody anybody that brings him something he doesn't want to hear is wrong. Well, the, the point is, no one's going to bring him anything anymore. So he's going to be in a position where he's no longer getting the best information. And if you're in an organization, for example, where pe- there's more candor in the hallways than there are in the rooms where decisions are being made, then you're in a failing organization. You need to be you need to create a culture where the smallest and weakest person can surface problems. They can speak up. Is not going to get cut off. That that creates communication and information flow, which allows for success. If you create a thing where only the leader can make decisions and is smarter than everybody else, well, people are going to stop talking to that person. That, that person is not going to get the the feedback from the lower levels that he needs to be successful.
0: There's so much to chew there. Yeah, that you on there.
1: I went all over the place with that. I'm no, I,
0: I like I like all over the place because I that's how I work. Look, I, I think. I've been pretty open about this. Like, it's if you're in any leadership position right now, it's your job to study the government and to figure out what does great leadership look like and what does bad leadership look like. And I said earlier that it's not one size fits all, but but some things are pretty pretty clear. And um, you can look at research on this and theory on it. And like a couple of things that are really important, you mentioned trust. You mentioned communication. Uh, like if we can't communicate with each other, it's going to be pretty hard to be a successful leader. The research on vulnerability that Brene Brown has done um, and linking vulnerability to courage is massive. The idea that you take a little more of the blame and a little less of the credit is been proven. And so I, we can get into whether Trump, his decisions are good or bad and whether um politically this or that uh, to me i'm not even talking about politics i'm i'm evaluating him from a leadership standpoint and like to me it, it's 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 really essential that we observe that and we notice it just like we observe the head coach of your favorite sports team and you notice like gosh i think he missed the opportunity there and so i think it's important that we observe and notice what those that are in the spotlight are doing. And I think it's also our obligation and responsibility as patriots to, to do that, to do our, our little small part, very different than the work that you did, but we, we should at least be watching and observing.
1: Right. And when you have, when you have good manager, a good leader, you realize how much more productive and effective and, and it's a learning environment as opposed to, you know, a lot of us, at some point in our life, have had bad teachers, bad leaders, bad managers, bad coaches, and you realize just how uh, how demoralizing that is. And it's amazing what a difference it can it can make in people's lives or for for teams. And, and and there's there's certain qualities of that toxic leadership. It's you know they they keep all decisions to themselves. You know even as they go, you know there's the the kiss up, kick down phenomenon you see in a lot of organizations where. You know, people suck up to the people above them, but treat people below them like crap. Um, there's, you know, there's people who just don't want to take accountability that will throw others under the bus. You know, th- those things are just really toxic and really, you know, keep teams, organizations, what have you, from, from having the kind of success they want to have. And so it sounds simple, but creating a the culture of trust, it's not easy. It, you know, it, it means, be, like you said, being vulnerable, being humble. There used to be a book that again in this in our leadership seminar in CIA, we would read called Good to Great right it's a famous sort of business book. and it talks about getting the right people on the bus and and you know and but it talked about leadership and, and the kind of real successful leadership they looked at a lot of these you know companies that would bring in big name CEOs to succeed and, and they found the opposite they found that people who had come up from inside that focused on process and inputs and um, and were c- very humble We're the ones that actually had more success than these sort of larger than life you know people would come in and and, and try to, to run organizations like they had some great brilliant plan or vision when you know it's not oftentimes what it's not the vision that succeeds it's it's sort of those day-to-day habits it's creating a good culture and it's and it's taking accountability and and you know pulling teams together
0: yeah. In that book, they talk about level five leadership, which was really cool. Uh, by the way, I think he was the one that talked about a little uh, more blame and a little less credit. And Jim Collins is an amazing author. And that book's a classic. And he talks about level five leadership being like, once you remove the CEO, does the company actually get better or worse? And a level five leader, you actually take the CEO away, they retire, they, re- they go on to do something else. And the company actually does even better. Does fine, right? They've empowered the people to, to continue to flourish. Um, so that's one. And then you mentioned Gallup and Strength Finder, like how do we find our strengths and cultivate our strengths? So that's another good, um, good book for people to check out and an assessment tool to figure out what your strengths are. And the last thing I'll say on the corporate side is Google researched, you know, what's the number one thing that leads to successful teams? And at the time they were looking to see who are the people that we need to get on the bus. And what they actually found was, Rather than focusing on who the people are, what are the things that we need to put in place to have the team be successful? So security uh, and safety were like the two things. Like once we are secure and safe, then we can build from there. And I think that's a big piece of the trust. I'm sure to your point, your assets—if they didn't feel safe, like they're gone. Like they're, they're they're probably not meeting with you anymore, man. Like like if they feel like their life is in danger, um, like you're you're gonna you're gonna lose them. So those were some things that that just came out for me as i heard you talk and then the other interesting thing that you mentioned in when you were really riffing that i loved is this idea of adversity and we tend to say oh go toward adversity like you know, failure is what leads to success. And I think it's actually bullshit. I think what is true is reflecting on pain or reflecting on your failures. That reflection piece is what allows you to be more successful the next time. And so sometimes I think we glamorize adversity or pain Um, and I think what we really need to do going back to the strengths is to build in processes for reflection. And, you know, being around military people, like the best operators in the world are huge into reflection. Like, Hey, what could we have done better? Let's not, you know, I'm sure at the CIA, you did the same stuff. Like you'd come together and you'd you'd brief and, and debrief and go over, Hey, what did we do wrong? Like we need to go into those spaces so that we can learn. And so I think sometimes reflection is not emphasized. Instead, we say, just go towards adversity or fail, fail fast, fail again. And quick story from me. Like I said that to a basketball team once and I did a whole workshop on failure and it was a failure because before the game, the the, the guys are in the stands with their headphones on. They're like, Brian, don't worry. We're going to fail today. And I was like, oh man, you guys didn't get, you didn't get the message. I I screwed up. Like this is a massive failure on my part. So at any rate, I think like the idea of reflecting and, um, you know, after 9-11 having a commission to really learn about what happened and what went wrong, like that's huge. So, uh, I'm, I'm going to, you can jump in, but I'm I'm sort of off my soapbox. You know? <laughs> no,
1: well, you go back to that that good to great book. The other piece of the, rather than the level five leadership was the the Stockdale paradox, right? So it's it's admitting and dealing with brutal facts. Like you create an environment where you're willing to talk about what's gone right and what's gone right wrong without without pain or punishment. So that's why, like you talked about, special operators that they immediately afterwards have a hot wash and they look at what they did but there's no blame to it. It's like, what did we do wrong? What did I do wrong? What could be done better? But you know, you're know, you not looking to destroy someone who made a mistake, but to learn from that. And so yeah, creating that kind of environment where you can be really critical of the things you do, but then move on is really a health, healthy thing. But to go back to the empowered part of, the, of it, I remember I, I worked for a while after I retired with General McChrystal at McChrystal Group. And, you know, he was uh, the head of our special forces for years and it was in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he tells a story about, you know, being a four-star general in Iraq. And uh, he was leading uh, with our SEALs and Delta and our special force operators. And, you know, it was a sort of a heady thing to be a four-star general. And you know, people treat you like you're a king and you're the big decision maker. And he said, you know, every night I'd be, he'd be sleeping in his little area and he'd get, there'd be a knock on the door. And they would come in at 2, 3 in the morning and say, well, sir, we have a... A strike. We have a high value target, and you know, and they they would lay out the plan. Here we're going to do this, and we're going to infiltrate this way. and He'd look, and he'd you know, senior guy. Hmm. Oh, interesting. And then eventually he realized, you know, because this is happening every time. They're coming in to brief me on a plan that they want to take, and they're waking me up to get my approval. But I'm not providing any value. Essentially, the people who are briefing me know far more about this about what's happening. And essentially they're slowing the process down by coming to me to get approval. So why and he says to himself, well, why why is that? Why, why do we have a system where you know I need to approve this when in fact I'm not actually benefiting or helping the process? And he said, There's a couple reasons, but one of them is that I have a a perhaps a better, larger political context or context of what's happening what's going on in Washington or how it fits in with all the other things that our military is doing at the time. And he said, Well, you know, why don't I Why don't I fix it by giving everybody else the context? Why don't we create a system where in our meetings, I provide to everybody down the the, you know, through the through the force, what it is I'm thinking about, what are the inputs that I'm learning, what is the context of things doing. So they they can start to make those decisions and take those actions on their own. I'm still responsible, but I'm providing that context, which which is then creating and spinning up the process and speeding it up more and more. And so you are empowering more people. You are It's risky because you're allowing people to do things without you having to approve. But that's also a lot of self-awareness when you realize, you know, just because I'm a big important person doesn't mean I have to make every decision. What I need to do is create an environment where people have enough information so that they can make decisions and move forward. And there's certainly things that I still will, I will hold that I have to make the decision for because, you know you know you don't want to put people in positions where they're going to you know they they don't have all they need or they're going to be held responsible for things that are way above their head. but but that's part of the thing is how, creating enough context, emotional trust, and empowerment that you got that the whole system works. The system understands what is your context, what's your mentality, things you're doing so they can move quickly rather than everything having to wait to come up to the boss.
0: You talked a lot about risk. So here you are. You you just got a degree from Hobart. Then you went to Columbia and got a master's. Why why go the direction that you end up going in? Like what led you to to risk, uh, you know, to put yourself in risky situations and to explore the career that you explored?
1: Well, I mean, it goes back. If we're gonna talk about mad but so much stuff is just. We, we don't acknowledge how much stuff is just luck and the way things turn turn out. But, um, you know, again, I, I grew up in a in a comfortable family, given a lot of support. I liked history. I liked politics. Went to school doing that, traveled some overseas, sort of wanted to be in that environment. Liked sports. I liked challenging myself. Uh, graduate school was sort of more of the same as I, I pushed forward. I did a, an internship with, with the State Department to learn a little bit. I worked in the uh, intelligence arm of State Department, so I got a little sense of that of that world. And then among the places I was looking at as I came out, um, CIA was one of them. And and at first, I thought I was going to go into the analytical side of the CIA. So as you know, the CIA has a, a large clandestine side. It's the espionage side of their organization, where people go overseas and recruit sources and run spies. And espionage. And then it also has a large analytic side. So those are people who tend to be, Stay in Washington for most of their career, but they're the world's experts on everything from Iran missiles to Chinese economics to, you know, you name it, whatever, the you know, Russian Navy or what have you. Um, and they get all the information from all over the government, they, from academics and from business people and from, from NSA signals and electronic intelligence, from CIA human reports, diplomatic reports, military information. It all comes together for, for those experts. write up analysis and and things for leaders and policymakers. So CA has a big analytic arm, it has its overseas arm, then it has sort of a supporting science and technology and the administrative arm. So I thought I was gonna go into the analytics side. I'd been in graduate school and I thought maybe I would do that for a little while and go back and get a PhD and sort of become expert on something.
0: John, why why the CIA? Was that in your mind from a young age? Like when did that come out? No, in your-
1: no, I didn't think much about it or know much about it. Um, I think just you know, a series of choices is as, as I went forward, like I worked at a summer at State Department in, in their sort of intelligence area and realized that, hey, you know, for people who in this area, the State Department, CIA is bigger and younger people. So the State Department intelligence organization was small, intended to be much more senior, older people who work through the State Department and then found their way into their intelligence side. Whereas CIA was a much larger organization that had a throughput of bringing people in out of college and graduate schools and, and that have been working as lawyers or businessmen for a while. And um, so I was looking at uh, you know a number of government things, State Department, Foreign Service. Uh, I remember NASA I talked about going to, but CIA just seemed, it was just one of the things I looked at and went through a, the interview process, which is crazy and intense to include polygraphs and psychological tests and a variety of physical tests and other kinds of things, and, and just sort of move that direction, you know? And, um, but I came in to do the analytic side, and when I got in, I realized that i learned a lot more about what the other side did, the more secret side of the organization. And many of my friends worked on that side of the house, and I was able to switch over um, to work on the clandestine side because essentially my as i came in and went through the psychological testing and everything else um they sort of determined that that i that i that I would be good at that kind of work and there were some other people who wanted to switch and they said no you you don't fit our profile and so you you, you need to stay where you are
0: what else interested you as i like i think about where i was 18 to 23 like i had no clue like i
1: well I didn't I mean I could have easily gone and been a coach so I when I left school uh, you know we were good in lacrosse and so some a number of my friends that I played with at Hobart are top coaches now of of, you know division one lacrosse schools and um and I had applied I think when I left Hobart to go to 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 spend a year in England to coach the English national team and went through the process, but didn't get the job. And at the same time, I'd also applied to coach at Washington Lee University, it used to be Division One lacrosse. And went down and interviewed, and also didn't end up getting that. But then I was then I was going to graduate school and sort of moved into this other thing. So I could have easily become a coach like many of my friends had done. And that's probably where I would would have gone otherwise.
0: it's, it's so interesting. What surprised you about being in the CIA once you were in it? that was different than maybe what you've read about or watched movies or like, well, what was different about it than maybe you had assumed or uh, thought about?
1: Huh. There's a variety of things. One is, you know, it's a it's a fairly large organization. That, that the good thing about it is it's very mission driven. So it's, everybody who works there is pretty clear what they're up to and they're trying to do. Um, and I say that almost because when I started to work with companies on the outside, there's oftentimes, you see misalignments in company where people are working in sort of different directions and that that didn't happen.
0: Sorry, real quick. What what would you, what's the mission? Like what would you define the mission to be for most people uh, at the CIA?
1: Um, Keeping the American people safe, providing, providing intelligence to policymakers to help keep America safe. And, and, and everybody's very driven to do that. And it's a nonpartisan. I mean, that's one of the things I think it's important to stress in today's political environment, is when people talk about the deep state, or they think that you know the CIA was Obama's CIA or Obama's FBI or something. You know, Trump's FBI. It's not. It's not like that at all. I worked for almost thirty years, and with a variety of people in a variety of crazy places doing important things, and I almost never ever had any kind of political discussions. Nobody talks about this party or that party or working for this leader or that leader. You're working for the United States, and you're. You're focused on the issues that matter in that place to provide what what U.S. national security needs, and so.
0: Hey John, did I, they did they do anything to reinforce that to make sure that you remembered? Hey, you're working for the U.S. You're not working for the president. You're not working for anyone in the government. Like your job is to work for the country. Was there anything that they would do to remind you of that?
1: That's a good that's a good question, and, and you know, at a point now where I think no, no, there was nothing, but. You know, I when you look at organizations or sports teams we talk about, they build a culture that becomes so so part of the whole that that you'd almost when you're in a culture, you don't realize what you're doing is different from what other people might not might be doing. And I think maybe from the beginning they they develop a culture there. Um, you know, that we're focused, we're a foreign intelligence agency, we're focused on on understanding our foreign. Adversaries, working with foreign allies, um, providing information to to the United States, no matter what no matter who it is or what they need. so in in some ways, we you know I think you interviewed Mark Paul and you know he talked about we we almost are sort of a little bit disdainful of politicians. Like we tend to think the issues we deal with, we're so focused. If you're living in India and working on Indian things, you understand what's happening politically, national security wise, what it is, what's important, what isn't. And occasionally, you know, senators and congressional people come out and they'll ask questions, you realize, like, oh, these guys, they don't really understand the issues that are going on. They think things are black and white. They, they have sort of preconceived notions about what this might mean or that might mean. And as you delve deeper into these places, you realize, you know, if you came in with a preconceived notion of this thing is right and that's wrong, the more you learn, the deeper you go, you realize things aren't that cut and dry. That,
0: complicated. You, know,
1: you might change your view and think, okay, this is right. And then as you learn more, you realize, huh, this is even more nuanced. And so your job is to represent the United States in that country. And as best you can, translate that to Washington of what's happening here, what matters, what's important. And so you take that really seriously. And oftentimes you realize the politicians just aren't taking these things serious. They have, they have other inputs that matter to them, domestic, or trying to create you know, a branding view of how important they are or whatever, but it doesn't fit with what the reality of what you're learning. And So we can be kind of di- dismissive of politicians, you know, rather than, uh, you know, thinking the, that we, you know,
0: one the nature, party
1: or another. Yeah, both, both parties are kind of doofus to us.
0: The nature of politics is their their number one job is they want to get reelected. I mean, like, I think (laughs) that that, like, like, let's just the truth. And a lot of them, it's not even necessarily wrong. Because if they don't get reelected, then they can't represent the agenda that they think is the best possible agenda. Or they can't be in the room to make an impact. And so, like, the nature of that work is you literally have to be reelected for you to make an impact. And so, I don't even, I think sometimes everyone can bash on the politician, but this is the system that they're working with. And they have to be thinking about re-election if they then want to make decisions that they feel like they're best to, to make an impact on. So it is- It's I, true, but also you want, when you've risen to
1: that level of national leadership, they sometimes have to step out of that to think of the bigger, the bigger national security issues. And so- there's there's no doubt that there's tons of domestic things and there's areas that they need to focus on for their own partisan purposes, but there's some things that transcend it for you know what is you know keeping Americans safe or terrorism or what China and Russia are doing or where things are moving in the future that sort of and so yeah, we don't expect them to be completely non-partisan, but they but you want them to be understand that there's some issues that aren't that can't be justified by domestic politics. And that's what's tough now. You see. If you watch what's happening, you listen to the news, there's issues like Russia, China, the World Health Organization that have become domestic political issues. Like when the issue comes up, it's all about fighting over who, what's happening in Washington, rather than what the reality, if you're working in China or Russia or or on some of these health matters now, and you're taking it very seriously, you realize the debate in Washington has nothing to do with what, what you're seeing on the ground.
0: What was it like for you to be undercover? What, what is that experience like? And I'd love to know your mindset. Like what did you have to do mentally to make sure you were sane to make sure that you were healthy? Um, once again, like you're in behind enemy lines, you're in territories and I'd assume you have aliases. You're, you're, Uh, you're playing a role kind of like an actor in a movie and we'll talk about movies in a little bit, but um, what was that like for you to be undercover?
1: So cover there's, there's sort of two kinds of cover. Um, There's what we call cover for status and cover for action. I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but so cover for status means why are you living in that country? So for most of us, and I, I know you've interviewed some other agency people, you know, we we are State Department officers. We work in the U.S. Embassy and name your place, Indonesia, Manoa, India, Pakistan. Um, and you are, you know, the second secretary for political affairs or economic affairs. You're a State Department officer. And then there's also what we call cover for a- action, which is as you do something, as you check into a hotel, as you meet someone on the street, as you travel, what is the cover you have to, you know, if you're meeting someone who's a potential terrorist, I might use a different alias. I might use a cover to make to make him think I'm a, I'm just a businessman or I'm someone selling something that he's interested in, just to make that a re- initial connection. So those are two different kind of covers. But but in general, the best way to think about cover is 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 making it as real to your life as it be. So and probably like an actor, you need to sort of believe what you're doing. So if if I'm living overseas as a State Department officer, I'm around other State Department officers. You know i sort of learn enough about what the issues are and what's happening and so i get comfortable when i as i talk to people that this is what i do and then when i'm doing my real work you know it's not as a big mental jump i'm sort of off to to do that so i I, it's another one of those things that's tough to interview us older guys because you've been doing it for so long you forget what it is that it's different about it you're just used to compartmenting in your life you know for this thing I'm doing here, I have to be this person and focus on these things. And when I'm over here doing this, I can, uh, you know, I think differently about myself and it's just sort of how we do business. And that's how like now when I'm out, I'm comfortable talking about my career and my things. I know where the line is of what stuff I can't talk about and what I shouldn't talk about. It's just sort of over the years, you learn that how to compartment your brain to focus, to stay focused on the thing you need to focus on now. And then, change when you need to change
0: are there any downsides to that ability to compartmentalize are there any things where that hurts you in in any way in in life or uh like i'm just curious to better i think
1: that's a really good question um i mean a lot of good literature spy stories are sort of about what is it that could about a person that could make them you know situational Judgment or ethics to deal with different kind of issues. I mean, for the for the good part is I think it makes you resilient. It makes you very easy when there's a crisis or you're dealing with something to to just live in the moment and say, okay, I'm not. I don't need to focus on things I can't control. I I only deal with the things I can control right here. And so we tend to be very good at you know putting aside stuff that that might be driving every pe- other people crazy to focus on what needs to get done and we live through, you know, wars and crisis and bombings and all kinds of things. And so like when something like this comes up to health crisis, you know, you and your family are pretty focused. Okay, that's, that's fine. Here's, here's the guidelines. Here's the headlines. Here's what we can do. Let's focus on what we can control and not worry about too much. And you see other people sometimes freaking out and upset about stuff that uh, they know being upset about that or freaking out about it doesn't benefit anybody, you or anybody else. It's, and so some of that resiliency i think is is the good part of it the bad part of it um there probably is is something something to, to that you're not as vulnerable or you're not as um you know open to sometimes other people who might need to be able to talk about those kind of things because you know i'll be friends and they'll, they'll go off about oh, how they're worried about this and that and i'm i'm less empathetic tolerant or friendly, empathetic as I need to be. Right. I'd be like, what do you, what do you care about? You know, whatever it is, you know?
0: Yeah. I have mean, seen, I've seen much worse. I'm sure. Uh, I'm curious. This, I want to make sure I word this the right way. So I'll use somebody else as an example. <laughs> I had on a special operator, you know, a former Navy SEAL and he said something to me that was, it just kind of grabbed my attention. He has a big Instagram following. And he said, Brian, I've gotten more fulfillment out of my Instagram than I did in my service. And he wasn't saying it lightly. And he he basically was saying, you know, I get messages from people that have said that I'm inspiring, that I've changed their life, that they were depressed or this or that. And Um, my interacting with them has really helped them when I was overseas, you know, we were fighting an enemy, but at times it was kind of like, what are we even doing here? Like, we're just sort of circling the wagons and this isn't the fight that I thought we were going to have. And just like other complicated elements, I'm paraphrasing him. I'm curious for you, like, you know, you have a big Twitter following and you're used to being in the shadows for so long where No one, you know, I'm sure you had people that were friends with you that played lacrosse with you at Hobart that didn't even know what you did. Um, And now you're out and there's a sense of, I don't want to put words into you, but I would imagine there's a sense of pride or accomplishment or fulfillment that, yeah, I I served in this amazing organization and I saw things to help our country and I tried to act and do the best I could. I'm curious, I would love for you to pull on this thread of being behind the scenes versus being out in front and the benefits potentially that can come from you going on TV or sharing stories or being involved with storytelling compared to being in the hot, behind the scenes and the way that you can make a difference just doing your job and putting your head down and and being undercover and i'd love to hear you just riff on that a little bit
1: interesting because i my my take is is, is very different in fact i mean i find now i i like speaking and dealing with groups and and you know i've done some television i've, written, I've done some writing for new york times atlantic some other kind of things and you know twitter and getting some feedback but i don't i don't really get that much fulfillment on it like i don't care that much the kind of feedback or whatever i get from twitter and or from that kind of stuff it's fine um i felt more fulfilled than like doing what i was doing before so it's not the public thing that i find is fulfilling inside i got plenty of positive feedback I maybe one of the things with your your friend talked about is you know I don't know if he was a senior officer or not one of the things that I think I benefited enough from and had been around old enough to be in the CIA where I I led a lot of large groups and so I had people who worked for me I felt I felt fantastic feedback when they succeeded or they came to me and, and felt like that I was helping helping them or helping their careers there was enough Positive feedback of the things we we're doing—that when you, when you know you've done something well and and uh, it's making a difference—so that internal feedback and that direct feedback from people I work for in a large network of people that are working on the same issues that that have sort of the same thing—that was incredibly fulfilling to me and sort of all I really needed. So when I left, it, I did not feel a need like I I need to I need more or I need some sort of public manifestation of that i didn't feel that and i don't feel that i for while i was doing some you know tv and i don't do it that much anymore i mean people i'll still get called and i'll be i don't see a real upside or benefit if it's if it's an issue i think i know more about than anybody else because of a unique set of uh background or or things that i was involved in i will gladly go and talk to groups or or talk them tv but i don't feel like i want to like speak about other things or, or 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 i don't feel that that when i do that it's it's strengthening my self-esteem or, or making me feel better so um i i like writing things if i can write something and really put to, put together thoughts that i think can provide something new or a different take on something based on my experience um i i feel uh I get something from that as opposed to sort of just the public instant feedback you get maybe from Instagram or or Twitter or television or something. So I do it because I think it's important for our national security agencies and certainly our intelligence agencies to have some, some sort of relationship with the public because we work on behalf of the public and there's a lot of misunderstanding of, of what we do. And I don't want to be someone who is just trying to, always speak about the agencies of us doing wonderful things and it's all perfect. Not at all, but I want, I want people to know what it is we do in their name because we take it very seriously. And there's a lot of smart people who work really hard and are away from their families and spend years and years in tough places and maybe even put themselves in harm's way to do this work. And I think American people should know the good, bad, and ugly of it.
0: As I'm hearing you talk, I'm kind of thinking about psychology and and there's a debate around how much do you share about the work that you do with people and respecting confidentiality? And uh, our job is to be in service to our clients. But there's also a downside to that, which is if you keep psychology behind the curtains and stigmatization can come and people can be afraid to speak out about their health. And recently Michael Phelps has been very open about his mental health. And, and there was just an interview the other day where he said, "I'm I'm really struggling right now. And like, I think there's value in having somebody of that stature admit that and be vulnerable with that. I think psychology and mental health still has a long way to go and it's complicated as far as what's best. Um, But I would imagine with the CIA, it's also like there, there's a price to making things a secret. There is a, a, there's conspiracy theories. There is all kinds of other stuff that pops up when you keep something behind a curtain. Look, like I've, I was born and raised in the D.C. area, and I know when I go on the, you know, GW Parkway and I pass a sign for Langley and the CIA, I'm like, what the heck is going on over there? I just want to go in. I just want to be, it's like in Hamilton, they say, be in the room where it happens. Like, come on, like, just let me see it. And uh, if you're a curious human being, you're going to want access. Heck, I live next to Walter Reed Hospital and NIH, and they have gates and I'm like, I just want to drive through and see what's going on. <laughs> like, um, and so I, I think there are, there, look, I understand. And we don't need to go into the reasons why some things need to be classified. I, I think I get that. I hope most of my audience gets that. I don't really want to go down that path. Um, but I just, I, I believe in polarity. And I believe that when you over-index on something, there is always something that pops up on the other end. And um, so anyway, that this is some of my thoughts. I'm curious what you miss. What do you miss about being in that room? Like, what do you miss about like being in the action and um, being involved in those conversations that are national, big, big, serious uh, conversations that have implications?
1: That's good. I mean, first of all, i, mean, I as privileged to have been in those rooms. And I think you're right to, to want to be that. It, you know, it's a real privilege to work on behalf of American people and to work on issues that sort of, that you know matter. Um, but to step it back for a second I mean step it back for for a second yeah Americans and secrecy it's always been tough like you know we're we're a country of sort of transparency and openness and democracy and we don't we're not as comfortable with organizations that are all about sort of secrecy and things and it does breed misunderstanding it breeds conspiracy theories and other kinds of things but having worked in an organization whose job was essentially to run conspiracies around the world to trick people into doing things, or the, you know, undercover and run espionage organizations where I'm smiling with the head of a country one day and the next day I'm stealing from the person who's working for him, or those kind of things. The one thing I can say is, anyone who's in the business of creating conspiracy and running espionage and and managing secrets knows how very hard it is and how the most successful operations things you do are very simple and straightforward, and you need secrecy to make them work. But there's a world out there that that creates this spider web of incredible, like, consp- the, the more crazy or, or, or complicated conspiracies there are, the more likely that they're, they're bullshit. Like, nobody could pull out, even like it's like the Kennedy assassination, the, no- the notion that, you know, 60 years could go by with not one person ever saying, you know what might have happened is that in this town you know you know if something can stay secret for a week it's a big it's a big deal um so yeah i mean the things i miss are like you know as you work with sports teams is obviously the people like it's being in the locker room it's the relationships if, if you're with a small group Working on an issue that mattered, maybe in a hard place. If you're in Kabul and there's people are bombing the embassy and you're trying to get out, and you're and you're and what you're trying to do is really important. Those relationships become tighter and tighter and tighter. And we often talk like in a place like Afghanistan or Iraq when you're working, those almost become like surrogate families. You know, people will be out in the first week they'll be in country, they'll be calling home every night, and maybe like the second, third week they'll call home, you know, two or three nights a week, and then by like week six. The people you're with are almost your new family. Like they know you better than anyone. You're working 24 hours a day, and you're in a difficult situation. You have to understand each other, and I think the military deals with that, some of that. So the people you develop incredibly close and important relationships. So you're if you're sharing sacrifice, and you're in sharing secrets, and you're sharing a mission together. So like sports in the in the locker room, that's a big thing, but also the issue. So. Being focused on a mission that you know really matters is something when you get up in the morning, you go to work, you know exactly what you're doing. You know why it's important. There's no, what am I doing here? Why does this matter? Uh, and if you find yourself in that position, working in a place like CIA, then you're you're probably miscast or you're, you know, there are poor, poor managers and sort of some offices that maybe aren't doing as well as they could be, but it should be very clear. So the ability... Every day when you be in meetings and you'd be working with people, you respect smart, you're dealing with really smart people, you're dealing on a really clear mission. Um, the decisions you know you're making sort of matter and other people would love to be in a position to be making them. And so I definitely miss that. I, I, you know When you're home and I'm working, I'm creating and writing a I thing, I, I take pride in that and that's important, but it's not the same as being with a group of people working on a really tough problem. Um, on a mission that you know is about protecting your country
0: what what don't you miss
1: there like any organization there's no doubt that at, at a certain level there's sort of i remember my dad he would talk about he was in the army during the korean war and you know i can remember asking him one time like well dad you were in the army You know, came got a phd at syracuse and went to be a professor and i said like well, why did why didn't you stay in the army and he's like there was just too much horse shit. He said, (laughs) he was, you know, there was just like, you'd write things up or do things because they wanted to do, you know, clean your shoes for no reason. Like, so there was just too much stuff that wasn't really, wasn't clear to me why the orders they were giving me mattered. And and I, and I, he didn't like that. And, and we don't have much of that in the agency, but any organization has some bureaucracy or silliness. And in the in the agency, at a certain point, even the the more senior you get, the more it's almost like um, it's like high school hallways, you know, your reputation and sort of people talking against each other as they sort of make, they sort of nudge each other around politi- for political purposes can be a bit trying and painful. Now, luckily, I spent most of my career overseas. So working overseas, if you're running what we call station, which is a CIA office, it's very clear what you're doing. It's very clear who you're working with and on what behalf, and it's just wonderful. Washington can be a little bit more of a game because you're dealing with the White House and Congress and Defense Department and FBI, and there's a little bit of, it can become a little frustrating and silly sometimes.
0: What did you do then mentally emotionally physically spiritually to make sure you were strong or what do you do now I I just would love to go into what you intentionally have done to make sure look I see you take notes like during our time together I think you even flashed up your notepad and there were a bunch of notepads you you're you're drinking uh, a drink right now like so there's clearly some intention that you have um Based on the computer, every once in a while, your biceps are flashing onto <laughs> on, onto the computer screen. There they are; like they, they look pretty pretty solid as well. So I'm just curious like, what do you intentionally do to mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually be at your best? It might be similar to what you did back then. It might be different. Um, feel free to compare and contrast. But uh, <laughs> I think I think one of the things that people enjoy about this podcast is that they get to learn about what people intentionally do to be the best version of themselves. And so I'm always curious what people are doing to, to do that. <laughs> um, well, for me,
1: it's, uh, you know, I, I think I developed sort of a I've been sort of very consistent through my life, whether I did it consciously or not, maybe just sort of comfort zone of the kind of things I do. So I've had a sort of a series of habits of how I have lived, almost depending on where I where I was. Cause I again I grew up as an athlete and I grew up in a small town. And so and my parents were teachers. So I I read a lot, I read the papers, I follow issues sort of religiously. Um I've always sort of stayed in shape. I've never let myself really get out. My knees are really bad. I'm getting a knee replacement in a couple of weeks, in fact. Um, but I still try to, you know, lift, exercise, ride a bike. I can't, I haven't run in years. I can't do that anymore. Um, so, so I'm pretty, you know, I've, I've never sort of gone off the rails or started to drink too much or eat too much or not work out or not read or, you know, I, I, I'm sort of lucky I haven't really had you know, a lot of sort of psychological or, or family problems that have sort of gotten me off. So I, I'm pretty consistent. So I, you know, I get up early, I-, I
0: What time, John?
1: Fa- fairly healthy, what?
0: What time do you get up?
1: Usually like five, 5.30. Now, actually with this, I'm getting, sometimes as late as seven and stuff. It's sort of,
0: I'm, there's some changes
1: <laughs> because of always being home and everybody being home. But, but I always get up, I, I eat fairly healthy, I read the papers. Um, sort of try to keep up on things. I always have several books going, um, you know, try to exercise, do things. I, we have, I'm very family oriented, dealing with the kids, trying to take them, being involved with what they're doing. My wife, I want, we have dogs and stuff, walking the dog. And so there's sort of a process of things that I've done no matter where we've been. But it's funny, you mentioned like, what is the things that talk people's psychological health and stuff. And we, we are joking um Like when you, Show up in one of these war zone places where everybody's sort of coming together. There's sort of a joke. People talk about, hey, which way is this person going to go? Are they going to chunk, hunk, drunk, or funk? Which, so there's a there's some people who get into one of these places and like there's free food and they just eat and they become fat. (laughs) because, like, like, that's sort of how they deal with the pressure and the psychological thing. And then there's other people because there's often a gym in these places in Iraq and Afghanistan, or Pakistan stuff. A hunk out. They they like totally get focused, you know, on um, getting in shape. Or some people start just sort of drinking too much, or you know, or they don't bathe enough or whatever. They, they skunk. And so, um, for me, I've never sort of deviated from sort of basic stuff. I've always sort of done, and maybe that just makes me boring. I don't know.
0: No, I think. Um... One I think it of makes you me
1: mentally healthy, but it makes me boring.
0: I think one of the commonalities of people I've interviewed is many of them are just intentional with how they go about doing it and they're not reactive. So um, they don't let the external drive the internal and they've set up processes internally and and that's just what they do. And I will tell you like the first week of the quarantine stuff, my wife and I both like to drink wine. And uh, the first week we're like, yeah, let's just drink. And pretty much every night we're just – drinking wine. we came out of the first week and we were like, all right, we think we're going to be doing this for a little while. This is probably not going to be sustainable. And, And we've checked ourselves. And I think that's where a partner can really be helpful to make sure that, you're in good shape and I've thought about people that are alone during this time and I think I heard you talk about camaraderie and the brotherhood or whatever you want to call it and you're right athletes when I ask them what they miss most they usually say it's the camaraderie Um, I think that's why we're meant to be social beings and we're meant to have connections with people and I think a lot of people are really struggling right now and uh, to your point you grew up in a household that was safe and secure and I I did as well and the reality is a lot of people are not in that situation at home so it's definitely a tricky time in that that regard um john i want to give you a little bit of space here we've been riffing for a while to so just tell people what you're up to now because i think it's really interesting and i want to learn a little bit more as well so <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about it sounds super cool it's a little bit sexy as well and and so having worked in sports and understanding the sexiness that comes with sports and uh the excitement that comes like i'd love to learn about what you're up to and what you're doing and what that experience has been like
1: <laughs> sure so after I, I retired, I worked for a few years doing sort of um, consulting work. I said I worked for McChrystal Group, which was Stan McChrystal's sort of work, working with the with, uh, private sector and learning a lot about what companies do. and try to bring some of those leadership uh, teachings and learnings that we got from CI and, and bring them into the corporate sector. But for the last couple of years, what I've done is I have a small company called Spycraft Entertainment, which is working with Hollywood to try to bring and improve espionage content in Hollywood movies, streaming services and others. And so I have a friend who worked at the agency, very senior officer, was a chief in Baghdad, chief in Berlin, Manila, other a number of other places, great storyteller. Was in Afghanistan on donkeys, going off for bin Laden, sort of grew up as a hippie in upstate New York, but and then had you know traveled through India and Afghanistan and all these kind of Iran and places back in the day. Uh, and he retired later than I did and it's sort of a funny confluence of events we were at a bar drinking and I was sort of bragging I had just gotten a call like I was home one night and my phone rings and, and they pick it up and it says John this is Rob Reiner and I'm like Rob Reiner what you know who who, who uh, was an All in the Family and, and um, a variety of shows obviously and uh, he was you know very very sort of a left-wing anti-Trump guy and was very concerned about what was happening with the Russia stuff in 2016 and 17. And he wanted to do a sort of a video with general Hayden, the former CIA and NSA director and Clint Watts and myself to talk about Russia things. And so he, he did that. And I, and I did that with Rob Reiner. So when I was with my buddies and we were drinking a bunch of agency guys, telling stories, I talked about, Oh, Rob Reiner. And we started talking about, Oh, you know, we should do is we should create a, a, a show, you know, maybe a, uh, Anthony Bourdain type of show where we travel around the world and tell old spy stories from old spy books and things. And we said, well, we should do that. So I ended up hooking up with this friend of mine and we essentially started to do that. We traveled out to Hollywood, started to work with a variety of either actors, uh, writers and others and started hooking up with uh, some companies that represented writers and found that uh, there's a real interest in in sort of spy stories tend to do well. Um, and there's a lot of people really trying to push content now that there's so many services, Hulu and Amazon and Apple and everybody else, obviously, is in this in this game. And so, you know, as time has gone by, we got a little bit of money for investment and have been traveling out there a lot. We have a number of uh, projects going. So we have several movies, TV shows. We have a kid's show with Apple. We have a Moscow-based show with this new streaming service, Quibi. We're working on an Afghanistan show with MGM. We have, uh, we've, we've optioned a number of old sort of old or new spy books. There's one on uh, the Berlin spy tunnel into East Berlin that we're working with the guy who had, who wrote uh, field of dreams and uh, sneakers and a number of other movies to try to write a series based on that. Um, we're working with the guy that the original sort of Israeli guy who started Homeland on a couple of different shows. And eventually what we want to do is as we start to, Get stuff on the screen and have success is then pulse our network of people who who either can consult or have a wide variety of stories to work with writers on different kind of ideas. So we have all kinds of things going: alien shows, and kid shows, and things now. So it's a it's a slow process, and you know, of all of ten ideas in Hollywood, you know, even ones that look like they're going to go great, sometimes sort of fall through. But it's creative and it's different and we're around interesting people. We're telling interesting stories. We're, we're obviously doing it, making sure to not give up secrets. So, we, so anything we write or do ourselves, we're clearing through CIA to make sure that we're not saying anything classified. But it's been tremendously fun. And you know, it's one of those things that I had a wonderful career, I would not trade it for the world, almost 30 years doing stuff I felt was important. But this is fun and creative. So even if it does fail, it's it, it's really good fun and I've gotten a lot
0: out of it. Yeah, you're pretty lit up, like, as you're talking about it. A lot of smiling, a lot of excitement. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Mark Mark talked about, I don't know if, if this, it's the same bar that Mark referenced when he was on the podcast. Oh, the VNA, um, so he yeah. doesn't
1: shut up about the
0: VNA. <laughs> he doesn't. So I told him, <laughs> like, one of these days, I will make the trip across the river, which is a big deal for us Marylanders to go to Virginia. Yeah,
1: I'll, meet, I'll meet you over there, but... It, it's not like it's a nice place. <laughs> I fine. like it too.
0: We'll make it. We'll make it happen. Uh, and and I can't wait to see what some of the stuff you all put out there. And uh, as somebody who definitely, I, I definitely geek out over some of those shows. And. Um, I was into Homeland, and then I sort of dropped off. Uh, but I was just talking to my dad about it the other day because they just finished, and he said like, it was awesome. So um, maybe I'll have to go back and, and keep watching it. We could have all those conversations. But I, well, love, sto- some, I love storytelling. I think storytelling. Well,
1: there's some was- CIA guys that, that worked as sort of consultants mm-hmm. on Homeland. So they would work to help them try to give the feel, the places where they were. And so there's a number of agency people that have worked on some shows we wanted to just take it to the next level to actually work to create and produce our own shows and then use our network of people around the world who had worked in all kinds of crazy places to, to then, you know, when the next Homeland's made, help facilitate people to help them do it. If we haven't written it or produced it ourselves, we can at least support by getting people involved. At least that's the
0: idea. Makes sense. It's super cool. Where can people find you on social media or if they are a writer that has an idea or wants to collaborate or what have you, where can people find you?
1: So I'm, I'm on Twitter. Just my, my name, John Cipher, S I P H E R. Um, And we're at Spycraft Entertainment. There's that, we have a website. It's not a great one, but, and I'm at John at spycraftentertainment.com. And so they can either write me a note or they can get to us through the website and I'm on Twitter and glad to respond to people if need be.
0: Fantastic. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. John, uh, man, like I have a lot more questions, but I also know that we both have to go. And so, but I'll tell you what, yeah, go ahead.
1: If you, I'll hook you up with Hollywood people and espionage people if you hook me up with some of these sports star people, because that's, I'm still a big fan.
0: Well, we'll we'll cross-reference our our resources. And <laughs> look, I, for me, I love, we, I think we both like diversity of people and people that are doing different things. So when I first started this podcast, everyone said, oh, is it going to be with just sports people? I go, no, I don't want to. <laughs> like, I love sports people. There'd be plenty of sports people, but The the diversity of people I've had on for me is where the fun is and the cross references and the similarities and and the differences. I I think that's what life is all about is the diversity of thought, the diversity of experience. Um and so learning from you is very different than learning from Mark as well. Like I we all have our own story and our own experience. So Mark um, was a
1: student of mine at the farm. So I remember him well.
0: So we'll have to talk about it, and uh, the farm is something I've, I'm also curious about. But we'll we'll save that for maybe beers uh, whenever we're allowed to have beers again <laughs> and together. Um, so looking forward to it. And once again, thank you for your time, and and thanks for sharing, and thanks for opening up and being willing to give people a a peek into your life and and also uh, the CIA and and everything that that goes on there. So um, appreciate you.
1: My my pleasure. Thanks for. For, for allowing me to do this. And yeah, let's share a beer and some um, chili dogs over there whenever you get a chance.
0: It sounds like a bad thing for my stomach, but a good thing for my soul. So we'll make it happen. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem.
1: If you're in an organization, for example, where pe- there's more candor in the hallways than there are in the rooms where decisions are being made, then you're in a failing organization. You need to be, you need to create a culture where the smallest and weakest person can surface problems. They can speak up, It is not gonna get cut off. That, that creates communication and information flow, which allows for success. If you create a thing where only the leader can make decisions and is smarter than everybody else, well, people are gonna stop talking to that person. That, that person is not gonna get the the feedback from the lower levels that it needs to be successful.